Welcome to this episode of Student Success Heroes, a podcast by Engineerica Systems. I'm Janelle Connor, and I will be your host for this episode. We created this podcast to celebrate and share the stories of our higher educational professionals who make a difference in the lives of students. For this episode, we're thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Tricia Seifert, Associate Professor of Adult and Higher Education with Montana State University, researcher and author on the Supporting Student Success blog, and CEO of Success Prints LLC. First of all, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And would you go ahead, Tricia, and tell us a little bit about you, your story, and maybe how you ended up in education? Sure, I'd be happy to. My name is Tricia Seifert. I'm currently an associate professor at Montana State University in the adult and higher education program. I'm also the CEO and owner operator of Success Print LLC. It's a consulting and product company helping students make the transition from high school to college. And you ask an interesting question about how did I come to be in education? And the story is sort of funny and circular. And I feel like many educators, particularly those who work in the higher education space, have circular stories. I went to college as a sociology major. Well, actually, before that, I started as a theater major. It lasted all of two months. <laughs> yeah. I was. That's about like me. I actually started in theater as well. I did one semester. Really? And then I changed my major. Yeah, it's so funny. I was from a small rural town in Northwest Ohio, and I was a big fish in a small pond, and I loved the theater. And I got to college, and I realized I wasn't all that good. <laughs> <laughs> and... um And so I found how much I really loved my sociology and political science courses. And so I completed my majors in those areas, went off to graduate school, actually, at Ohio State University in sociology. And about two terms in, I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be 29 years old with a PhD, and I will never have worked a full, like, standard 40-hour work week. And it kind of freaked me out. And um, so I decided that graduate school wasn't for me at that time. And what I really loved was working at a camp in New Mexico. And so I went back out to camp and stayed on and worked in outdoor recreation for a couple of years and found my way out of outdoor recreation into running programs that had a real outdoor element in a boarding school for kids with learning disabilities. Oh, wow. And that sort of experience in a residential boarding school moved me into higher education in an office of residence life at a small liberal arts college. And that just sort of launched my career in higher education and in student affairs. Wow, that's really neat. And it is interesting where life takes us. We think we're going one direction and then we are like, oh, wait, no, we should try this other thing. And we end up in in these different avenues. Similar to my story, like I started out in theater and then I was like, well, I actually I don't think this is the lifestyle I want and the career choice that I want. So let's try psychology. And then nah, I don't I don't really want to go into that. So I tried dance actually for a little bit and then. Yeah decided no and and my I wasn't very good at dance I just loved it so much and thought well if I can learn it I can teach it right 
exactly. (laughs) Thankfully, my husband was like, you know, you might want to think about uh, some other (laughs) options. So I did go into education and English, specifically English literature. So that's that's what I got my bachelor's in. But then going to Valencia, I got a job at Valencia College. And then from there, I just moved into more and more roles at Valencia because I just fell in love with it. So very similar to mm-hmm. you, had a little roundabout way of getting into education. I think it's often the case. <laughs> yes, yes. I hear that a lot. Like I've talked to a few people on the podcast even, and a lot of them more or less fell into education and just love it. So they stayed. So I discovered you via the Student Success blog, where you're one of the contributing research authors. And from your CV, I see you've done a lot of research, a lot of publications. And I've actually found a lot of great insight from you and the other authors at the blog. And so I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about the blog and maybe how it came about and what kind of response you and your colleagues are getting with the blog. Yeah, the blog, the Supporting Student Success blog on WordPress was my research team's effort as a means to get findings from the Supporting Student Success Research Study out and in the hands of practitioners and educators on the ground in real time. And as quickly as we could complete an analysis, think through the findings and the implications, it gave us a means to disseminate what we were learning from this really enormous research study. And 2010, I began the Supporting Student Success Research Study when I was a faculty member at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, which is the Faculty of Education at the University of Toronto. And it's a multi-institutional, pan-Canadian study, so spanning the country, mixed methods in three different phases. So we began with interviews and focus groups on the ground all across the province of Ontario. Toronto is central and the largest city within the province. And from those interviews and focus groups developed a survey that we then administered in two different ways to universities and colleges across Canada. And so the blog was really our way to take this massive data set, this massive research project, do analysis, and then share the findings as quickly as possible. And so it really was a dissemination tool because formal academic journal articles can take upwards to two years from initial writing and submission for consideration until publication. And we just wanted to be able to share in a more quick, in a quicker way. So that was the initiation. (laughs) Thank you. And in more recent years, I though started chatting with our research team and almost all of whom have graduated. So that project began a decade ago. And I think at this point, oh my gosh, nine something like nine new doctoral candidates who are now PhD holders and master's students have graduated from the project. And it's just really super gratifying. And they're teaching and researching all over Canada as well. And I said, you know, this is an opportunity to really share and a space to share the good work that people are doing worldwide around supporting students to realize their academic and personal goals in the post-secondary sphere. And so we really started to curate stories, posts from 
practitioners and staff members and educators and researchers all over the world. And I'm really excited about the one-stop shop was a great piece from a colleague in Mexico. Yes, They're doing some really amazing work around widening participation, which is the phrase used often in Australia and in the UK for increasing access to post-secondary education and My colleague, Kirsty Wadsley, formerly at the London School of Economics, wrote a piece about a year ago. Sam Avataya, who I met at a conference, wrote a piece about her outreach work with high school students in rural and remote Australia. And so it's been really a fun way to showcase and highlight the good work that's going on globally. Yeah, that's really neat. And I I just, I love that it's a global effort because we know that students across the globe are having very similar experiences or similar challenges, I guess. And it's really neat to see the different ways, the innovative ways that colleges are looking at education and how to support students and help them be successful. So I love that you're not just focused on the things happening here in the U.S. or in Canada, but you're looking at the whole global perspective. And I really appreciate the blog in that. And I've I've enjoyed the different articles that I've read there. So thank you so much for putting that together and keeping it going. Oh, thank you. You know, I think that really this focus on global understanding and and valuing what we can learn from our colleagues around the world stems from my own education. I'm a huge proponent of study abroad because I saw how it changed my life. When I was nine years old, a family in our small community started hosting exchange students through Youth for Understanding. And I always wanted to hang out with those exchange students. I knew them through 4-H and I just so appreciated how they saw the world and what I could learn from them. And as I got older, I went to my parents and I said, can we host an exchange student? And so we hosted five students. And then I said, can I be a student? And I um, went abroad through the Congress Bundestag Scholarship Program to Germany. Oh, wow. I was abroad, yeah, during the reunification year, which was an unbelievable time to be learning in a different language, in a different context, in such a historical moment in that space. And so I think that experience has really prompted me always to want to understand how we can learn and what we can learn from our colleagues and our friends around the world. And it's just really gratifying when I look at the statistics of who's reading the blog. And it's literally people from every corner, um, (laughs) every area of of the globe. And that's just really cool. That is cool. And I'm hoping that with this podcast, I'll see some global interaction like that, too. But (laughs) anyway, talking about having a perspective, you've done a lot of work with the K through 12 schools. And we had a good conversation the other day about the student voice and Mm -hmm. how important that is. So you've been quite an advocate for the importance of the student voice. Tell us a little bit about the work that you've done, especially with the K through 12 schools to discover the student voice and some of the insights that you you've learned from students that, you know, impacts the work that we're doing with student success? So I really believe that before educators can fully understand and create a response to an issue or a need, they have to deeply get what that issue or need is from the people 
And when we're talking about student success or the transition from high school into college and what are those needs, the best thing we can do rather than assume we know Mm -hmm. what those needs are as educators is to go to students themselves and ask them, what would have helped you? Or what are the challenges you're facing or faced? And so years ago, we, we did that using a Jeopardy game. And my research team at Montana State, we traveled around the state and we played Jeopardy with students in mostly really small rural high schools. And we used seven categories, just like the TV show. And they were categories like applying and paying for college succeeding in college classes, asking for help, making friends and getting involved. And then we invited students to write on the tiles the questions they would have in those different categories. And then we used those questions that students generated really as the centerpiece for moving our work and making recommendations because they were coming from the voices of students themselves in their language in their vernacular. And so when the student writes, how do I live without my mom? Okay, we know that homesickness is going to be really central. And now though, we can respond and work to develop interventions and opportunities using the language that students use as opposed to academies or, you know, edu-speak, if you will. Yeah. And so I just really think that when we as educators invite students and center them in the effort to create responses to whatever those needs are, then we also have an opportunity, and I would say even an obligation, to center students in the implementation of that response effort, and then an opportunity and obligation to center students in evaluating what we've designed. Definitely. So the students are really center to every single component of the response. And in many ways, I think it comes down to listening to students, learning with students, and then leading alongside students. And I think if we were to center our practice from those three principles, we would have a higher level of engagement and investment and buy-in and then greater success. Definitely. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it was really interesting when I was working with the institutional assessment office and we were working on the first year experience for the student and deciding whether to mandate a student skills or student success class at the beginning of their first semester or their their first year at Valencia. We wanted to um, get some feedback from the students and I was really glad that they did that and we did focus groups and we learned so many interesting things that we wouldn't have considered like we had students who were mandated into the three different prep level classes the reading the writing and the math if they were mandated into those three classes then they were mandated into the student success class mm-hmm. and when we talked to the students about it and we asked them how do you feel about being mandated into the class they were like what are you talking about we don't know what this word mandate means <laughs> and We didn't, and several of them didn't even know that they were required to take the class. They just said, oh, someone told me to take it, so I did. So it's really, I mean, you you need to listen to the students. You need to get their voice. You need to find out, you know, what they're thinking because that will influence the decisions that you make and you'll make better decisions and make 
better programs to help the student. Exactly. And I feel like sometimes educators on our committees, particularly at colleges and universities, feel like we've sort of checked the box in terms of including students when we have a single student on a committee or a task force. But, you know, that places just an enormous responsibility unfairly on that person, on that student, to try to represent the entirety of a student body. And of course, that's unfair. But more importantly, it's unfathomable. Like, how can a single student do that? They have their perspective and that of their friend group. And so unless we're really actively inviting student perspectives to include commuter students, adult students with children, you know, all, you know, the entirety of our student demographic, we can never achieve our ultimate goals with a single student's perspective on the committee. You're so right. And I mean, I, I do appreciate having a student there to have their feedback, but it definitely is not enough. Yeah. It comes with the bias and the perspective of just that student or just those one or two students. You've done a lot of work with K-12 through schools and looking at understanding the transition to college and kind of the factors that help students thrive when they get to the university. And then you've also, through the blog and through the research you've done, looked at a lot of different global ways that people are approaching it. What are some of the unique ways that universities can support students when they arrive? You know, I don't know that I think this is particularly unique, but I feel like it's not done often enough, which is really inviting students into small community. Mm -hmm. So when you think about an orientation group, it tends to be 12 to 15 students with a single orientation leader. And what we know is that you can get lost even in a group that feels small. And 12 to 15 in colleges and universities is a small group when you think that many first-year student courses and 101 course may have 100 students or more. So we pat ourselves on the back for creating these small groups of 12. But 12 students is still an easy way to kind of hang to the back, not to engage, to disconnect. And so I think a unique thing that, that campuses could really do is tightening those groups up into groups of five to seven, which for those who do qualitative research is kind of the awesome focus group size <laughs> because everyone is really invited into that dialogue and that's where those connections get built. And so I think that my current context is one of a large public land grant university in a very rural state. And as I've traveled around Montana and met with high school students from very small communities, The idea of coming to our university can be downright overwhelming because they have never, some of these high school students from rural communities have never consciously made a friend. Mm. They have gone to school with the same group of kids their entire life. And so the idea of coming and meeting new people and hundreds of new people at the same time is, it can be so anxiety provoking. And so if we can recognize that the value of small group to sort of normalize making friends, making connections, so that there's, you know, there's just a small group of people who are looking out for you, 
who are looking for you to go to, to dinner, especially in those initial weeks, to know you have that sort of birds of a feather <laughs> group, I think could be really unique. Yes. Now to do that, to use that many small, small groups of five to seven, the number of peer leaders that you would need to have goes up exponentially. Yes. It typically, it would double whatever number you currently have, double that. Okay, so that has real opportunity because now you're expanding your peer leader network on your campus from maybe 100 peer leaders to 200. So how are we going to prepare and train? I mean, it does come with, it comes with cost, no doubt. But I think the benefit is that you now have 200 students who are trained, prepared, and can network across your campus with all of the students with whom they come in contact, not just their small group of five to seven, but they're better advocates for the student experience and connectors. And that goes back to some of the research findings from the Supporting Student Success Project. We heard that peers are connectors. They connect students in crisis to resources they need. They are coaches. They are confidants. And they co-construct the student experience when we invite them to do so. Yes. I think it's very important that we team up with the students and have them help us to be identifiers for student needs. If you have a peer leader that can quickly identify, hey, this student is having a little bit of trouble adjusting or needs a specific service, if they can be a referrer and a person who helps guide the student, Mm -hmm. that will help the university overall. So I agree. Building up a bigger base of peer leaders that are there to help students would be truly valuable. I've talked to some clients of our AccuCampus product, which is it's an engagement product. It's meant to engage the student, to refer them and have them be able to easily find the resources on campus. But it also takes having that human connection. And so built into the product is individual ways to raise different flags or even action items that need to take place for a student, such as like we've, we've had an example where a student can refer another student to counseling by saying, oh, my roommate is having some anxiety or something like that. And if the student has access to actually flag those things, and there's a system behind that that informs the right resources to reach out, that can be hugely successful and helpful to those particular individual students that are struggling. So I'm a big proponent of having the students be a part of that system of referrals and tracking as well. Absolutely. I, I sometimes joke that students are, they are our greatest asset in educating and persistence and retention. They are. And they're often overlooked. Yes. For what they can really bring to the conversation. Because most students will go to another student first. And oftentimes it's because proximity, another student is hanging out with them at the student union building or in between class or in their residence hall or in their apartment. And so they're just in greater proximity to peers than they are to student affairs staff members, faculty members, folks in the library. And so imagine if we really intentionally networked 
students. And I remember saying, and, and it got this bit of buzz last year at the Canadian Association of College and University Student Services Conference in Calgary, then what if we reframe this notion of look left, look right, one of you won't be here, you know, next year, which was a very common sort of saying from the mid-60s, to look left, look right. You're going to be called upon to support both of those people, and you are also on the left and the right of someone else. Yeah. And that really builds this net, this network, this spider web of support. Yeah. And I mean, I think that speaks to some of the success that colleges have seen with their supplemental instruction, having, you know, a peer there in the class to help instruct the students in a way that the faculty members can't because they're not a peer. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I, I'm totally there with you. <laughs> awesome. All right. Were there any other really important questions that we should be asking when we're trying to determine how best to help students as they arrive and as they continue and complete their education? I think it just literally goes back to asking students what they need and then working with students in crafting that response and then working with students in evaluating what you did. And so it's literally centering students and asking them the question and using their responses to inform whatever intervention, whatever practice or policy we initiate or alter. So what are some of the ways you, you talked about a really great one, your Jeopardy game and getting a group of students together to play that. What are some other ways that we can solicit that student feedback and voice? I think it's literally asking I've been using games in, uh, in a whole different variety of ways because I see how engaged students are when they play. But mm -hmm. it's remarkable how often I have through research, going back to my own graduate training, I worked on the Wabash National Study, and we had this huge qualitative component in which we conducted in-depth interviews with students at five universities that participated in that project. And the number of times when I was in an interview and a student would say to me, wow, no one has ever asked that question. No one has ever asked my opinion. I didn't think anyone cared. Signals that we could spend more time as educators not responding in a vacuum, but responding with student evidence and student voice. And so I think that has just been so, it left an indelible imprint on me as an educator and as a researcher when early on in my own preparation, a student said, no one has ever asked me that. And to hear it over and over again suggests we don't ask often enough. Yeah. And so there's a multitude of ways we could ask. I mean, when you think about in a classroom, how do we assess student learning? Sometimes we do, you know, one-minute reflection papers or exit tickets or one of our favorite ways is in a classroom, like what is the muddiest point and crumple it up and it's that popcorn and then you throw it in the middle and then someone picks it up and then reads out the muddy point and then you have a conversation about it. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to solicit feedback beyond the telltale survey yeah. or <laughs> the, the, you know, the, as you finish with a service, they ask you, can you give us, you know, five minutes to complete this um, performance feedback? Yeah. And those things are valuable too. 
But I think that there is value in creativity. There is value in novelty and engaging students and their brains and their um, hearts in ways that allow them to tell stories and narratives in slightly more unique and personal ways. Yes. And just hearing you talk, it sounds to me like we have a lot of work to do in educating our educators in how to solicit this, how to create opportunities for creative interaction, connection, and feedback from the students. So I think there's a lot of work that we could be doing with training our peer tutors and training our professional tutors and training our faculty and advisors in how to be creative and solicit the student voice at the same time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I I really have enjoyed learning about gamification, and I want to delve into it more, and I love hearing about how you're using it. And I I know it's really been a helpful tool because, like you said, students are more open and willing when they're playing or having fun. And I know we did scavenger hunts to lead students around the campus early on to learn, you know, what's available to them. Or we created badging and publicly recognizing the students for their efforts or things that they've accomplished. And I think those are some really great ways. I don't know if you've seen some other ways or if you want to jump into what you've been working on, but have you seen other ways that colleges are using gamification? Absolutely. And the the literature is just burgeoning with new research studies looking at gamification in education spaces. Yeah. And I want to distinguish between gamification and games because gamification uses game mechanics in non-game applications. So whenever we use points, and so we have a project on my campus called Champ Change Points. And so when you make choices to go to the library, you can scan your ID card for Champ Change Points. And as you accrue points for doing educationally purposeful behaviors, like attending a speaker, for example, or yeah, studying in the library, you gain points that can then be redeemed either at the bookstore or at some institutions that may even go towards some level of scholarship towards your tuition. So we use points in gamification, leaderboards, um, any sort of competition quite frequently between residence units. So between, you know, floor two, resident hall A against the other residence hall, maybe against this fraternity and against the sorority. Gamification is really popular in those ways. And it's oftentimes within that sort of performance space, like achievement, recognition, leveling up. That's uh, different ways that we often use gamification. But then there's some really interesting ways that I'm seeing people use games. And quite popular right now are different versions of escape rooms. (laughs) And maybe you've seen this too. Breakout EDU uh, has these game kits. And one that I was reading about just the other day uses for first-year orientation students. And it's a partnership with orientation and the library. We know that first-year students, many of them are unfamiliar with the 
depth and breadth of resources within an academic library. And this breakout EDU is an escape room that draws on the library as a context and it introduces first-year students to the special collections and how to use a collection and reference materials. And it's all centered there in the library. It's a great example of using an escape room concept. And when you look into the literature, escape rooms have exploded (laughs) in terms of their use in education spaces in the last three years, for sure. And, And I've seen an escape room in action in an education setting. One of my colleagues created a really in-depth escape room as her exam preparation for students in a English language arts methods course for teacher education preparation. And it was everything they had learned in that methods course were the answers to the clues to move forward to get the next clue to be able to escape, right? So escape rooms are really popular as a game component I think I saw the value of games maybe initially from observing my nephews. (laughs) I have four nephews that are my sister's children. And, you know, over holidays, we played board games. We played card games. And then I observed them playing video games on any number of their devices. And they're just so engaged, (laughs) fully immersed. And in many cases, in almost every case, they were learning a tremendous amount. Like we played this bean game. It's a card game and it's, it's like a mini economics lesson and it's about trading and about futures. And like there was all sorts of sort of micro and macro economics content that could be learned through playing that game. And so it just really got me thinking, how could I take what I have learned about student success? and how to help students in that transition space be successful when they get to post-secondary in a way that's meaningful for them. And, you know, as a tenured professor, I could have written, you know, 10 more peer-reviewed academic journal articles, and I still do that. But (laughs) I really wanted to do something that was for the students for whom the research is all about. Yeah. And so I've been working on these gaming ideas for a number of years. And in the last two years, was able to connect with a game developer team, students here at Montana State University. And they were instrumental in taking those ideas and building and crafting a real honest to goodness, engaging and crazy, wickedly fun game that has become Success Prince Crash Course. Yes, I'm so excited about this game. When I heard about it, I really wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about it. So tell us more. Like, I love board games and I love, you know, cards and movement around a board. And I understand this game is about, you know, when you first get to college and kind of the different decisions you have to make and the the play you have to do uh, to succeed. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the gameplay, how it works, and maybe kind of how it helps students as they're playing. Yeah, so what I heard from research in in visiting with students, uh, especially and this comes back to that needs assessment, what were your questions and concerns from the Jeopardy game? What are your questions about going to college? And over and over we heard 
worries about time management, how to balance your time, how to get up in the morning, like all of those sorts of sort of self-regulation components. And so the centerpiece, the actual main game mechanic are blocks of time. And so you play the game by choosing across a week of events and opportunities, how are you going to use your time? And based on your time allocation, you have a different payout at the end of the week. So if you choose to spend your blocks of time in class, you're going to gain study points. Mm -hmm. If you choose to spend your time going to a social event, which means you have less time to go to class, you'll gain a social point, but you won't be gaining those study points. And it helps students to recognize like time is finite. And in the game, you hold it in your hand. And something that just really sticks with me is I think it was a sophomore, a grade 10 boy in a rural school says to me, wow, like it, it feels different when I can see my time in my hand, like it makes it real. Yeah. And we often think about time as like infinite, but really it's not. It's obviously not. What happens when you use up all your time in the game is you gain stress, which is what happens in real life when you use all your time. (laughs) And so, (laughs) you know, the other thing that um, the game literature makes very clear is when the content of the game and the consequences of the game align with the content of whatever you're really trying to teach and the consequences of that, that's when gameplay to learning increases. When you play a game that has no real connection with the content, like it's fun, but it doesn't change behavior. It doesn't increase learning. And so we thought it was really important and essential that the gameplay mirrors real life in as close as closely as possible. And so, yeah, when you use up all 12 of your blocks of time, you're going to gain stress. And stress comes off your total score at the end of the game, just like it takes a toll on you in your real life as well. And so you make choices about whether you want to go to a social event, how much time you want to spend at that social event, selecting friends, recognizing that friends come with superpowers, but sometimes they also come with relationship maintenance. And so... You have to think through, like, how large can you really have your social network if five of your friends require you to spend time with them every week, which is then time that you're not spending in other places, like going to class or (laughs) taking advantage of the campus resources. And, And that sometimes friends cost money. And it's been really interesting, especially as I've game tested around Montana and beyond when high school students say, what do you mean this friend costs money? I was like, well, do you know friends who are always wanting to go out? Maybe they're out, they want to go with you to pizza or for ice cream or, hey, let's have a coffee date. (laughs) Those are spendy friends. And their friendship maintenance, their relationship cost is your money. And How many of those friendships can you maintain? So it's a really great way to sort of have conversations as an educator, as a parent. Yeah. And what I love about the gameplay is that 
it's true to life, but it's a condensed version that you can really learn from before you go out and actually make those mistakes in real life. You can make them in a game and learn from them instead of, oh, let me do this in real life and learn these hard lessons and then end up, you know, failing or having to struggle. So this is really a unique and creative way to teach lessons that would otherwise be learned, but learned in a way that might not be helpful to students being successful. Absolutely. What's in the game in Success Prince Crash Course is almost everything that you would hear in first-year orientation. But instead of being talked at for, I don't know, five, six, seven hours, this is 60 minutes of gameplay that students are seeing the results, the consequences of their choices, whether those choices are great or whether they're really poor. Yeah. It's valuable when in a week when there's an assignment, so you get an assignment card and you have to choose how much time you're going to spend on your assignment. And, and I've seen it over and over. Players are totally immersed in the board and they space that they have an assignment right in front of them. How often have you seen or heard college students? They're so immersed in everything that's going on on campus that they totally flake out on the yeah. assignment that's due in their class <laughs> that week. Yeah, It's completely true to life. And then players will say, oh my gosh, I didn't do my assignment. What happened? And I'm like, what do you think happens in real life? Yeah, You just exactly. don't get those points. Or you have to negotiate with your professor how to turn it in late for now less points. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's an opportunity as a result of their choices, of their engagement in the game to have those conversations in a different way than the old peanuts teacher from the TV show. (laughs) Like it's not that. It's a different way to have a conversation. And what's crazy is you see students learn and make different choices the next time they play. So I played with a group of students, high school seniors in a small town in Montana in October a year ago. And no one went to the academic advisor when that resource card was available on the board. And I thought that was curious because it has a really nice benefit of spending your time with them. And um, because it helps your GPA, gives you study points. And I asked, why, why did you not go to the academic advisor? Well, the reality is, is high school students don't have academic advisors. They have a high school counselor. And so how would they know what that person does, what that role is, if it's a totally different language, if we use completely different words for people who do similar like things, but there's a transition from high school to college. So we had a conversation about it. When I came back in January and played the game with them and that game resource card came out, everyone went to see the academic advisor. And then I asked them, I was like, why did you do that? I'm, I'm noticing like really different choices here. And they're like, well, because your advisor helps you. And they knew all of the language. They're like, your advisor helps you choose the right courses, make sure you're in the right major. You know, I couldn't have told them all of what they were telling me back. Like they <laughs> learned that, they intuited that because of playing the first time and having a conversation. Yeah. How many times did they play the game before they could do that? So that was just on the second time. 
So we played wow. in October and then we played in January and then I came back out and played in May. And by May, it was so fascinating. One, they didn't require my assistance in facilitating the game. <laughs> well, they really don't require the facilitation assistance after the first time playing. But what happens though is as a facilitator, you're able to sort of enter in the, the conversation. And that's why this is really an educational tool. Yes. Because it's a super fun game and you could play it just for fun. But it's where you use the game to spark conversations that you may otherwise have, but within a different vein. This is a little deeper and more meaningful because it's connected directly to choices and actions that happened moments ago within the game space. Definitely. So would you say the intent of the game is to have it played in high schools and have teachers there to facilitate? That is one of the intentions. Absolutely. And so like I've created a YouTube channel and I'm uploading and creating content all the time around prompts and ideas for how to debrief. Uh Because I think that for this to be the most valuable curricular tool around college and career readiness, and teachers, counselors, facilitators have to understand some of the background themselves. Um, and for many teachers, college today is different than when they went to college. You know, if you've been an educator in uh, high school for 25 years, you know, there are now campus resources that didn't exist when you were a student. And so you have to learn about them. Yeah. So in becoming a facilitator for a game, you also, like any new content, you have to spend some time with the game itself and, and learning the rules and learning the game flow, but also learning the opportunities and how do you interject into these debriefing moments. And that's really the rationale for creating the YouTube channel was just to be able to give sort of that background information beyond a rule book kind of thing. Yeah. And similarly, Around a, uh, around a table, you know, I was thinking about in COVID and during COVID, and I think that we will be back in our homes, per- perhaps in this coming winter, for some level of remote learning. And so when people are gathered around in their households, there's a real opportunity for parents and siblings to learn together and have some fun during yes. gameplay. Not only that, but it's a chance for parents sometimes to reflect and think about their own college experience with a new lens. And I hear that over and over when I play with our friends who have kids who are playing the game. They're like, oh my gosh, if only I had this in 1989, (laughs) Um, this, this game would have been so important. Not only that, but there's an opportunity for parents to have, to develop some empathy and understanding of the demands that they're, son or daughter will soon be facing. Yes. And I think that that empathy building can be of enormous value when they too are struggling to balance and manage their time strategically in this game to be able to think about that when they hear from their student who's now in college in that coming fall about the struggle (laughs) to manage their time strategically between class and making friends and getting connected and part-time job and all of those things. Yeah. And also as a parent, if you're watching your child play this game for the first time, you can start to see where the gaps are, where the needs are. 
so that you can start to address them before your student goes off to college and help them in those areas that you're familiar with that you know they they need to learn more about. Absolutely. Yep. So what's next? Where is this game going and and what are you working on now? Yeah. So the game, I'm excited to say, just got in a huge inventory and so ready to send out games to anyone who's interested in having one in their home or in their high school or in their college to play. Yeah. But we're also creating an online platform for the board game that will allow us to go deeper into some of the social connections and allow more customization so that players can really see themselves represented in the game, which you can do in a digital format. And it will allow players to be able to play remotely at a distance. And so in the event, we have a requirement to return to homes for some period of time this coming winter. The goal is to have this online game platform up and running and available for play come come this fall. Excellent. So we're working on taking all of the game mechanics from the board game and transitioning them into an online game platform. And I just met with the developers last night. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm excited to see where this goes. I'd love to play the digital version. And I'm going to definitely check out the board game. And I'll put in the show notes and podcast posts about where they can find the game and get a hold of it. For sure. That would be awesome. (laughs) And what else are you working on? I saw you have a speaking engagement coming up. Yeah, so I'm so excited to be keynoting the Inland Northwest Student Affairs Colloquium. This year is a virtual conference, series of presentations throughout the month of July, and I'm kicking it off with a keynote on July 7th, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And the title of the talk is Just What Games Are All About Play, Fail, learn, play, win, how games promote student success. And I'll I'll be sharing about my experience working with game developers around the college transition board game success prints crash course and other research and findings about gamification and game use to promote student success in that transition space and in in colleges in particular. Awesome. So I'm super excited. What's so cool about virtual professional development is that you can go speaking about a global audience. The world is your oyster right now with virtual PD and webinars and talks um, available through Zoom or WebEx or GoToMeeting or whatever your platform is. People can literally from all over the world hear me give this talk without having to go to Spokane, Washington, which is where the conference was supposed to be held. And so, you know, my colleague who purchased a couple games to use with uh, college students in in the United Arab Emirates can hear my talk without traveling. (laughs) My my colleagues in Australia can, can hear the talk without traveling. And so I think that there's some real value and what we're learning about remote learning, not only for students, but for educators to learn and share from one another in these times. And so I'm excited for hopefully a global audience to this virtual keynote. Yes, I wish you all the success with that. And hopefully a lot of people will tune in and I'll post 
a link to that in the show notes as well. I agree with the virtual events. We're working in that space with our continuing education products and our conferencing and events products. And it's true, you can you can reach so many more people with the virtual event than you can with just a face-to-face event. And so we've worked on our conference tracker product to make sure that all events can have a virtual component and it can be a live stream or a playback of a pre-recorded video. And that way, more people can still participate. And we even have built-in CE tracking, CEU tracking, so that those who want to continue to develop and get their continuing education while we're, you know, stuck at home or unable to meet face-to-face, they have that option. So yes, I, I completely agree. There are some great advantages to having a digital or virtual conference or event. Well, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share. And this has been a really such a fun hour. And I thank you for the opportunity to to share about what I've learned in terms of supporting student success and how games and gamification can really entice learners and students to make the most of the experience. And I always go back to what one of my nephews said to me. And he said, Aunt Trish, the fun has to be first. (laughs) And I had to think about that. I was like, fun first. He's like, yeah, I know the education stuff is really important to you, but you got to have it It has to be fun first. And then you can make the education parts come in. And so as educators, I'm always thinking like, okay, where's the, how do we make sure that the fun is on the forefront? And then we can, once we have them enticed, that's when we can really dig into the learning. Thank you so much. This has been really insightful, really inspiring. I think it will be so for the audience and for others who get to listen to this. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me, Tricia. I'm I'm in awe at all that you've done, all that you've researched, all the work that you've put into this. And you really are one of the student success heroes that I built this podcast for. Oh. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. Take care. We want to thank Dr. Tricia Seifert for joining us on Student Success Heroes, presented by Engineerica Systems. We want to thank her for allowing us to share her story and learn more about how we can better serve students. And of course, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us for this episode of the podcast. To help us keep this podcast going, please subscribe, share, and review the show. Thank you for all you do to serve your students. Engineerica works with hundreds of colleges and universities to bring them helpful software, tools, and technology to aid those who make student success their priority. Engineerica has helped institutions for over 25 years to gather valuable data regarding student attendance and usage of student services through academic center management systems such as AccuTrack and student retention and success applications like AccuCampus. Engineerica also works with associations and event professionals to provide solutions such as Conference Tracker, which helps manage professional development or continuing education training and conferencing events. We invite you to visit Engineerica.com for more information about these helpful tools, expert tips, and technology. We love our higher ed heroes and hope that we can all learn from them and their inspiring stories. We also want to hear from you and invite you to leave us a voicemail sharing your stories and thoughts with us. We invite you to tell us what are some unique ways you are seeing games and gamification utilized in student success, and in what ways are you inviting and listening to the student voice in your efforts. Whatever your experience, please share it to help others. I'll leave a link to our voicemail box in the show notes. Take care.